One of the most obnoxious behaviors to witness in a social setting is pride. When a person constantly exalts themselves and boasts in their success or abilities or knowledge or in the good things they've done, or when a person sees themselves as too good for something or for someone, or when a person seems obsessed with their looks and that people are looking, or when a person dominates conversations, always somehow bringing the topic back around to them, uh, or when a person will not concede a point in an argument because they just have to be right about everything, or when a person is critical of everyone but themselves, or when a person is unwilling to say sorry when they've wronged someone, or when a person is unwilling to ask for help or take advice or heed any warning, or when a person is always justifying their sin instead of just admitting it and repenting of it, or when a person just thinks they are so awesome and everyone should see that. And the crazy thing about pride is that it has an incredible blinding effect upon the prideful person because when pride's being manifested in a person's behavior in a social setting, everyone sees it clearly except who? The prideful person. And why? Because pride is so deceptive. And my favorite little story which illustrates the deceptive nature of pride uh, was written by Hans Christian Andersen in 1837 called The Emperor's New Clothes. And the story begins with an emperor who loved new clothes and he spent all of his money on being well-dressed for everyone to see. And one day, two swindlers came into town who were fabric weavers and they claimed to have a special cloth to make clothes that was invisible to anyone who was unfit for their job or was stupid. And so the emperor, you know, so wise and obviously fit to rule, thought that these would be the perfect clothes for him, for he could wear them and discover who in his empire was unfit for their job or stupid based on whether or not they saw his clothes. And so the emperor, deceived by his own pride, paid the swindlers a large amount of money to get started on the clothes. And after a while, the emperor was curious to know how the clothes were coming along, so he sent a minister to go see the swindlers. And when the minister got there, to his horror, he saw nothing. And he wondered, am I unfit to be a minister? Am I a fool to not see these clothes? But when the swindlers asked him what he thought of the clothes, he said, Oh, uh, it, it's beautiful. It, it's enchanting. Such a pattern. What colors? I'll be sure to tell the emperor how delighted I am with it. And he returned to the emperor, praising the beautiful colors and patterns that he could not see. And then the emperor wanted to go see. So he took uh, two of his trusted officials and a band of men, and they all went together to go see the swindlers. And when they arrived, the officials said, Magnificent! J just look, your majesty. And the emperor said, Oh, uh, yes, it's very pretty. And all the men together praised the clothes that they could not see and suggested that the emperor wear them in a great procession through the town. 
And so when the day of the great procession came, the swindlers brought the emperor his new clothes and helped him try them on. And they let him see himself in the mirror and the emperor said, it's a remarkable fit, isn't it? And then the emperor went outside and walked through the city streets without any clothes. And all the people of the town said, oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes? Because nobody wanted to admit that they couldn't see a thing. But then suddenly a little child said, but he's got nothing on. And one person began to whisper to another what the child said, and soon the whole town was saying, wait a minute, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. And at that moment, as the emperor shivered through the city streets, he held his head high and walked more proudly than ever. Such a great little story, huh? It so brilliantly illustrates on so many levels the, the deceptive nature of pride. Pride is a poison that makes us see things that aren't really there and believe things that aren't really true, and like an addict, go to incredible lengths to keep it alive, to prevent our fragile egos from shattering under the weight of the reality that we are not as awesome as we sometimes think we are. And in the Old Testament book of Obadiah, which we're gonna look at this morning, we see an entire nation deceived by the poison of pride. And we'll also talk about how we can expose hidden pride in our own hearts. So, we're going to look at the book of Obadiah, but before we do, let's just pray and ask God to bless our time here this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Your word which teaches us truth and wisdom through ancient stories of people not so different than ourselves, and your word which convicts us and corrects us when we're in sin, and your word which shows us our Savior who is our only hope, not only for the future, but also now in the present and today. So Lord, we ask that you would teach us and convict us and correct us and show us Jesus afresh this morning. Amen. So the last few times I've preached, I've done kind of an overview sermon uh, on one of the books from the Minor Prophets, which are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And so far we've looked at Hosea and Joel and Amos, who all prophesied during the divided kingdom of Israel to either the northern kingdom, Israel or the southern kingdom, Judah. But in the book of Obadiah, we see something a little different. Not a prophecy against Israel or Judah, but a prophecy against one of their historical enemies. And because Obadiah is the shortest book of the Old Testament, it's only one chapter, 21 verses, we're gonna get to go through the whole book this morning, verse by verse. So, verses one and two begin. I'll let you turn there. I'm turning there myself. Verses one and two begin. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. 
Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, nations. Let us rise against her, against Edom, for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. So God, in his judgment, is stirring up the nations to rise up against Edom. But why? Why Edom? And why Edom and not Assyria or Babylon, the enemies that actually took Israel and Judah captive, invaded their land, destroyed them, took them captive? Why not Assyria or Babylon? Well, to discover the answer, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament book of Genesis to the story of two twins born to Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. And we read in Genesis chapter 25 that these two twins, Jacob and Esau, were engaged in prenatal combat, already fighting in the womb before they were even born. And God said, you know what, they're gonna continue fighting and their offspring will become two different nations of two different peoples, divided and in conflict. So Esau is born first and his name means Harry because, well, he came out looking like a rolled up carpet sample, I guess. And Jacob follows close behind, grasping onto Esau's heel, and his name means he grasps by the heel or he cheats. And in this patriarchal society, it was a big deal to be a firstborn son because the firstborn son would become the head of the family and would receive a double portion, uh, twice as much of the family inheritance when the parents died. And so we kind of get the impression that Jacob, being the second-born son, may have felt like the second-best son growing up. And to make things even worse, while Esau was a man's man, Jacob was totally a mama's boy. But, as God often does in the Bible, he reverses human expectations and shows special favor to Jacob and chooses to carry out his plan of redemption which started with Abraham and came down through Isaac, now through Jacob and not Esau. And later we start to get a sense of the kinds of people Jacob and Esau were when Jacob convinces Esau to sell him his birthright for a bowl of stew, which shows us that Jacob was a cheat. But Esau, Esau was a fool because he, living only in the moment, without a care of the consequences, gave up his special status as the firstborn son and all the blessings that attended it for momentary gratification. And later in chapter 27, we see some more trickery from Jacob. Uh, When his father Isaac is old and blind and nearing death, Jacob covers himself in goat's hair and goes over to his father's bedside. He's pretending to be Esau, his hairy brother, of course. And he tricks him into giving him the special uh, deathbed blessing of the firstborn. And when Esau finds out, man, he is furious and he vows to kill his brother Jacob. And what followed was a family feud that lasted for centuries. And so Jacob's descendants, of course, become known as the Israelites and their nation is Israel and they were God's chosen people. And Esau's descendants became, become known as the Edomites and their nation was Edom. And they were not God's people. They, they didn't want to be. 
And of course, the Israelites, if you remember the story, they become enslaved under Egypt, and that lasts for 430 years. But in a great exodus, in the book of Exodus, God brings his people out of Egypt through a man named Moses and begins to lead them to the promised land, the land of Canaan. But, and then we find out in the second half of Exodus in the book of Numbers, instead of journeying straight to Canaan, which should have only taken a few days, God's people wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, Israel came to a place where they needed to pass through Edom to continue on their way to the promised land. And so Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom requesting passage through their land. But Edom replied, don't even think about it. And if you try, we will kill you. And this didn't sit well with God. And actually a lot of things Edom said and did didn't sit well with God. And so what we see here in Obadiah is a whole book almost entirely devoted to explaining how God's judgment is now coming upon Edom. So what does Obadiah have to say about Edom? Verses three and four. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Key phrase of the book. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So, Obadiah is gonna show us some of the ways that Edom was deceived by their own pride. And the first thing we read is that Edom felt impressive and invincible. Edom felt impressive and invincible. Now, Edom was literally a lofty nation because they actually built their civilization way up high uh, on top of and carved into the mountains. And what we read here in the text is that their terrain was a pretty accurate reflection of their own hearts. So high and lofty and hard as a rock. And they thought way up there, in their nest among the stars that they could see all. But God said, you are deceived and you are not out of my reach and I will bring you down. Let's keep reading verses five and six. And I have to say something right here. See that phrase right there, second line, how you have been destroyed? It's a prophetic utterance spoken by God mid-sentence about a future destruction that he's so certain will happen uh, that he actually speaks of it as a past event, as if it's already happened. So just take note of that phrase, okay? And to keep the flow of the passage, I'm not gonna read it, okay? Not skipping over anything in the Bible, just, you'll see. Verses five and six. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Again, he's speaking of a future event in the past tense. Second way, Edom, Edom's pride deceived them. Edom treasured their treasures. Edom treasured their treasures. Now, we totally get this because we're Americans, and we amass all kinds of treasures. Nice homes, nice yards, 
nice cars, nice toys, nice furniture, nice decor, nice clothing, nice jewelry, nice savings accounts, nice retirement funds, nice stock holdings and investments, all those treasures that are so precious to the American dream. And sometimes our treasures become a status symbol which communicate power or success or trendiness to the world. And sometimes our treasures communicate to us ourselves that I am powerful and I am successful and I am trendy, which boosts our own self-image, the way we think of ourselves. And the Edomites were no different. They thought that their treasures made them somebody. And they formed their identity around these treasures. But when God would remove these treasures, they'd be forced to take a good look in the mirror and see themselves for who they really were and not for who they thought their treasures communicated they were. And what God says here specifically is that while thieves can't steal everything from a house they break into, and while grape gatherers can't pick and take every single grape, God can, and God will. He will bring them to nothing. Let's keep reading, verse seven. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Third way, Edom's pride deceived them. Edom rested assured in all their allies. Edom rested assured in all their allies. What's implied here by the phrase, all your allies, is that Edom put a very ultimate kind of trust in the supposed safety and security in having so many alliances. But when God would remove his gracious, sin-restraining hand from those nations, Edom would be turned on and they'd be made to see that they were fools for putting their trust and their faith in men and not in God. Let's keep reading verse eight. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Fourth way, Edom's pride deceived them. Edom worshiped the wise among them. Edom worshiped the wise among them. Edom had kind of a hometown pride because some of the Edomites were pretty smart. Maybe they were poets or philosophers or public speakers. What's interesting though is that while man measures wisdom by intelligence and knowledge, God measures wisdom by righteousness and obedience and the fear of the Lord. Or, or an intense reverence for the Lord. That's wisdom, according to the all-wise God. And God would expose this faulty thinking in Edom. Let's keep reading, verse nine. And your mighty men, your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, 
so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Fifth way, Edom's pride deceived them. Edom magnified their mighty men. Edom magnified their mighty men. You know, today Scotland is known for having some of the manliest and most mighty men in the world. They love the great outdoors. They're not afraid of the cold. All their traditional sports involve throwing something heavy as far as they can, and they're so manly they can even pull off wearing kilts, because I guess that's manly. And apparently, Edom had some pretty mighty men too. Maybe they were like today's Scots. But all men, mighty as they may be, become like dust in the hands of the Almighty. So, in the first nine verses of Obadiah, we see some of the ways that Edom was deceived by their own pride. They felt impressive and invincible. They treasured their treasures. They rested assured in all their allies. They worshiped the wise among them, and they magnified their mighty men. And God would show them that their impressiveness, treasures, allies, wise men, and mighty men were nothing. They were nothing. And then in the next section of the book, we see the singular sin for which Edom was now being convicted and condemned by God. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So God is particularly angry with Edom, not for those prideful things we just read, but for their sin against his people and their own brother Jacob or Israel. So what happened? What did Edom do? In 586 BC, when the Babylonians invaded Judah, here's what Edom did. I'll read verses 11 through 14. And uh, also take note of the progression of Edom's sin, okay? Verses 11 through 14. On the day that you, Edom, stood aloof, on the day that strangers, the Babylonians, carried off his, Judah's, wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So I see six progressive steps that Edom took into deeper and deeper sin. First, Edom stood aloof in Judah's destruction, meaning they just stood by and did nothing. Second, Edom gloated over Judah's destruction, meaning they got a sick satisfaction out of watching this all go down. Third, Edom rejoiced over Judah's destruction, 
meaning they celebrated what was happening to them. Fourth, Edom boasted in Judah's destruction, meaning they had a pharisaical attitude that said, ha, they deserved it. Fifth, Edom looted Judah's wealth, meaning they joined in with the Babylonians. And sixth, Edom assisted Babylon in Judah's destruction when they cut off some of the escapees and captured them and handed them over to the Babylonians. So they stood aloof, then they gloated, then they rejoiced, then they boasted, then they joined in and looted, and then they assisted Babylon when they handed over their brothers to the enemy. And then in the last section of the book, God shifts his focus off of Edom specifically and says that all the nations who are like Edom will come under the same judgment. We read in verses 15 and 16, for the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. I've said this in sermons before. Sin is like a boomerang. When a boomerang's thrown, it always comes back, and so it is with sin. Because all sin has consequences and effects that eventually catch up with the sinner and return upon their own head. And this drinking metaphor here in the passage is a picture of uh, ingesting, as it were, the contents of the cup of God's wrath against our sin. And we know from history that just five years after the events described in this book, the boomerang came back and Edom drank the cup of God's wrath when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed their nation. And then the Nabataeans drove them out of the mountains into the desert and eventually they ceased to exist as a people altogether. Let's continue reading, verse 17. But in Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So what God's saying here is that he's going to restore the holiness and sanctity of the land of Judah and that his people will possess the land again. Let's read verses 18 through 20. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. So God's saying that Edom will receive the punishment that their sin deserves, and we know from history how that happened, and basically that his people will possess the promised land again. And verse 21, last verse of the book. 
saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So God will raise up some leaders who will be like saviors to his people, and we know that during the return to the land from captivity, uh, that guys like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah were certainly some of these savior leaders. And finally, when it's all said and done, God will be shown to be sovereign over the course of history and over the rise and fall of nations and over his people and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So it's a lot of content in one little book, isn't it? And how does it all apply to us today? Well, we could talk about the necessity of healthy family relations because who knows what kind of ripple effect a bad relationship might have down through history. Or we could talk about the spiritual tension between God's people and the rest of the world, redeemed humanity and unredeemed humanity. Or we could talk about why we shouldn't be prideful like Edom. But I wanna take a different approach. The title of this sermon is The Deadly Deception of Poisonous Pride. And we've looked at some of the ways that pride can deceive us, right? But when I say the deadly deception, I have in my mind the single deadliest one. The deadly deception. The deadly deception of poisonous pride, deadlier than the rest, is this. To ever think that pride isn't always within us. To ever think that pride isn't always within us. It's to think that there are humble people and there are proud people. No, at best, we're a mixture of both. It's to think that we can grow out of our pride. Not totally, and he who boasts in his humility is the proudest of them all. It's to think that we as Christians are simply a type of Jacob or Israel, and in a sense we are, but in another sense, which is unutterably profound. You and I are Jacob and Esau. And you and I are Israel and Edom. See, God is such a great illustrator. He's always giving us pictures and stories and metaphors to help us understand spiritual truths. And what we see in Genesis are two brothers whose descendants become two nations, which God uses throughout the Bible as a consistent picture of an internal battle that is always going on within us between the spirit and the flesh. Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, the spirit 
and the flesh all irreconcilably opposed to each other and yet existing in some kind of relationship together, right? Jacob and Esau were still brothers. Israel and Edom were still family. And those who have trusted in Jesus who have the Holy Spirit are still in the flesh. And what I'm talking about is spelled out most clearly in the New Testament. So let's look at a couple passages. The first is Galatians chapter five, verses 16 and 17. Galatians chapter five, verses 16 and 17. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. These two opposing opposites exist within every Christian, the Holy Spirit and something within our own hearts that has been tainted and touched and twisted by sin, keeping us from doing the things that we now, by God's grace, want to do. And Paul expounds more upon this internal battle in Romans chapter seven, verses 18 through 24, where he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Wow, there's a verse. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law or an operative principle within me. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And of course we know the answer to that is only Jesus, but here's the point. Even those who love God and delight in God and want to follow God have an enemy within them, in their flesh, which wants to oppose God and his will and his word at every moment and wants to blind their eyes so that they will not see God's beauty and wants to deafen their ears so that they will not listen to God's voice and wants to harden their hearts so that they will desire sin rather than God and wants to deceive them into thinking that they are humble people because they're Christians. There is an enemy within all of us that wants to remain hidden and it will remain hidden in the darkness of our hearts if we listen to its daily whispers. You are a good person, Dylan. You are so humble, Dylan. You used to struggle with pride, but not anymore, Dylan. 
Those poor, poor Edomites. Good thing you're not like them, Dylan. You know, the reason the prophet Jeremiah said that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick is because the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and tax collector? The religious Pharisee stands up in the temple and says, God, thank you that I am not like other people. I am different. I'm a good person. But the tax collector stood at a distance, couldn't even look up to heaven and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which man went home justified before God? The tax collector. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the only reason we would ever need to humble ourselves is because we are, by nature, prideful people. Those who exalt themselves and believe they are so clothed with humility are like the emperor in the emperor's new clothes. They're naked and they will be humbled. But those who say, Lord, I come to you naked and poor, have mercy upon my soul, they will be clothed and they will be exalted. So look, we all know that pride is bad and something to be avoided. So in closing, I want to offer five questions we can ask ourselves whose answers may begin to expose hidden pride within us, okay? Five questions to expose hidden pride. Question number one, ask yourself, who or what do I find to be the most impressive person or thing in my life? Who or what do I find to be the most impressive person or thing in my life? Pride is impressed by the works, accomplishments, and abilities of man and the glory of self. But humility is impressed by the works of God's hands and the accomplishment of our redemption through Christ and the ability of God to do whatever he pleases and soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And this can be so sneaky because we can say all the right things about God. But if we find ourselves talking mostly about ourselves and the things we've done and the things we know, then maybe we're more impressed with ourselves than we think. Who or what are we really impressed with? Question number two, ask yourself, what do I treasure? What do I treasure? Pride treasures stuff, things, possessions, riches, power, status, but humility treasures the greatest gift the world has ever seen or known, a gift that can't be held with hands and yet is only given to open ones, Jesus himself. 
and this can be so sneaky, because we can say all the right things about Jesus, but if we find ourselves unwilling to be generous with the things God has blessed us with, or we find ourselves constantly focused on that next dollar, or that next vacation, or that next thing, that if we can just have it, everything in our life will be better, then maybe we treasure our stuff more than we think. What do we really treasure? Question number three, ask yourself, what do I rest assured in? What do I rest assured in? Pride rests assured in financial security, job security, home security, relational security, national security. But humility rests assured in the sovereignty, providence, goodness, in grace of God and in the promise of Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, he is working all things together for their good. And this can be so sneaky because we can say all the right things about God's sovereignty and providence and goodness and grace in Romans 8.28. But if we are always trying to insulate our lives with more money or better opportunities or more hopeful circumstances, then maybe we rest in the security that we think we or the world can provide more than we think. What do we really rest assured in? Question number four, ask yourself, what is wisdom and where is it found? What is wisdom and where is it found? Pride says that wisdom is intelligence and understanding and is found in better education and in the acquisition of more knowledge. But humility says that wisdom is to fear God and obey him. It's to know that he is holy and to be worshiped with all that we have and are. And this can be so sneaky because we can say all the right things about wisdom and the fear of God. But if we, like Adam and Eve, think that maybe there's more wisdom to be found apart from what God's revealed to us, and especially if we're so enamored with worldly wisdom, then maybe we fear man more than God. What do we really believe wisdom is and where it can be found? And question number five, ask yourself, who is mighty? Who is mighty? Pride says, in the words of the great theologian Beyonce, I am strong because I realized I got me, myself, and I. But humility says, Lord, I am so, so weak. But I know that in our weakness, you are strong. I need your strength, God. And this can be so sneaky because we can say all the right things about God's strength. But if we don't 
find ourselves regularly crying out to God for his strength, then maybe we trust in our own strength more than we think. Who do we really believe is mighty? Now, when I ask myself these questions, I can certainly identify specific times in my life where even if I would have said all the right things, that's not really how I was operating at all. And maybe you'd say the same. And so when we know that we are guilty of harboring hidden pride, what do we do? Well, we should obviously repent, but there's one other thing we need to know. It's true that even Christians who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are still in the flesh. But you know what? That's not how God sees us anymore. That's not how God sees us anymore. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What this means is that while we were once in Adam, we are now in Christ forever. While we were once children of wrath, we are now children of God forever. While we were once guilty, we are now forgiven forever. While we were once filthy, we are now clean forever. While we were once dead, we are now alive forever and will never die. Though there are still remnants of the old us within us, God sees the new, and the new is no less than the royal robe of the righteousness of Christ, which has covered our nakedness and sin and shame, meaning that when God looks upon his people now, he doesn't see our ugliness and our deformities of heart and flesh. He sees the beauty of Jesus, which has covered us and is changing us. And how did this happen? How did this happen? When our sin, like a boomerang we threw, threatened to return back upon our own heads, it fell upon Christ's in a crown of thorns and ultimately in death on a cross. And when we were slated to drink the cup of God's wrath, Jesus said, I will drink it. I will take their sins upon myself. And Jesus was judged for our sins. And he did it to return us to the place of God's presence that was lost when our first parents were exiled from the Garden of Eden and was lost again when Israel and Judah were exiled from the Promised Land. Because of Jesus, one day we will be with him in the greater garden and in the greater promised land of heaven. Man, praise God that though you and I have been like Esau and are guilty of so flippantly trading our, our birthright and spiritual blessings for bowls of stew, momentary pleasures the world has to offer, 
God has dealt with us as he dealt with Jacob. He's chosen us and he's using us to accomplish his purposes and to fulfill his plan. And though we've been like Edom and are guilty of pride and sinning against our brothers and sisters, God has dealt with us as he dealt with Israel. He's made us a holy people, a kingdom of priests, and a light to the nations. In the final analysis, all that we have and are can only, only be accounted for by the sovereign grace of God, shown to us in the Savior who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. And if this, the gospel, will not move our hearts to humility before the holy God, nothing will. Nothing will. So pray with me that God would give us the grace to never be deceived by the poisonous pride that is within us, but that we'd recognize it and repent of it and then rejoice in knowing that in Jesus, it, along with the rest of our sin, has been paid for. And now we, his people, belong to that kingdom that is and will forever be the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for treating us so much better than we deserve. Lord, we admit that we have lived so foolishly and selfishly and pridefully in a way that robs you of the glory that you deserve to receive through our lives and the glory that only you are worthy to have. So Lord, we thank you for the mercy you've shown us and continue to show us. And Lord, I pray that this mercy and the humility of the Savior, Jesus, would move my own heart to humility and the hearts of my brothers and sisters here in this room as well. So Lord, help us because we are feeble and fallible and weak. Lord God, you are strong and we have you and we praise you, amen.